Luke 2. This morning, the salvation of God. We read the story this morning from verses 8 through 21 of the shepherds out on the hillside and the angel appearing to them. And uh, this morning, this message, in this message here, we want to take a deeper look into that announcement by the angel made to the shepherds. And then next week, we want to go uh, look at the information provided by Simeon and Anna when Jesus was presented at the temple 40 days after his birth. And before I get started here, I want to emphasize one fact here, that many scripture passages familiar to us and to modern Christians do present a problem. And the problem here is acquaintance dulls understanding. We read the passages and we read the passages and we just hear the words and they don't really register to in our thinking so much. They are very familiar to us. And as a result, our understanding of them is dulled. And such is the passage that is before us this morning. And it's due to its frequent use at the Advent season. I would argue that Christians tend to see the Advent as interpreted by New Testament history rather than its being a fulfilling of Old Testament anticipation. But I would also argue that there's even more to it than that, and one of them is we tend to isolate it and we tend to make it its own thing at that particular time of the year. Oh, we just, we just love this, the story of this infant Jesus and, and uh, all of the trappings that are around about that and the angels coming to the shepherds and, and the wise men showing up and get with their gifts to the infant Jesus. And I would also argue that I think one of the great problems of our understanding of the story is that it has been deeply affected by the Roman Catholic interpretation of those events, which are very, very familiar in the culture in which we live. We need to step back and say, what went on here? What Does the story really tell us? What is the truth that God wants to convey to us? And I would argue here is one example is that Christians tend to limit the design of the incarnation primarily to a personal Savior to redeem individual sinners. Christ's death then becomes the center of attention and thus the infant in the manger lies in the shadow of the cross. Now, that's true. I'm not arguing about that. It is true. And the cross is absolutely necessary to the redemption story. It is not, however, the primary focus of the passage. It's not what was in the minds of the people in Luke's day. 
And it's not in the text before us. This is, the, this is what I want you to see. What was the expectation? It was messianic. Now, with the Jews, there was con some confusion because they were looking at the end of God's plan with respect to the messianic rule. And they thought that the end should come immediately. But here's the but the importance of the of the passage is there was an expectation, and the greater expectation was that the whole creation was to be restored because of the evil incursion of Satan into it. And what was lost by the first Adam was to be regained by the last Adam, Jesus Christ. So there's nothing in the opening chapters of Luke that points to the rejection of Jesus or to his crucifixion. And we were, we were, consider, we were considering that at the table. Here's Peter. Why did he deny Christ? I think ultimately the, it was because Things weren't going the way Peter expected them to go. And it was kind of self-preservation that kicked in at that point. Jesus was being arrested. He was going to go to, to trial to be crucified. Peter didn't expect that. None of the disciples expected that. They that, that's when Peter wielded the sword and cut off the, the high priest's servant's ear. That was part of it. He wanted to do battle for Jesus because Jesus put on your armor. Get on your white horse. Show yourself to be the Messiah that you, what we expected you to be. See, that's the point. But we don't read anything about that in the opening chapters of Luke, the op these opening verses. No. There's nothing. Save maybe a hint by Simeon that a, that, uh, a sword would pierce through Mary's own soul. But nothing is elaborated. Indeed, the message that we read here was one of excitement and anticipation of the restoration that God had promised in the Old Testament Scriptures and that would now be carried out by this infant in the manger. The message was one of celebration because what was promised by the prophets and held in great expectation was now being realized. The restoration of all things. Now, while there was some confusion about what that restoration would involve, it was still that was the anticipation, and and it's interesting that this is exactly Peter's message to the crowd at the temple who witnessed the healing of the lame beggar at the gate, beautiful. Healings in Jesus' ministry were microcosms of this promised restoration. 
And this healing of this lame man after Jesus has died and ascended to heaven is another microcosm of this restoration. A lame man, due to the effects of sin, not that he sinned, that he was lame because of his sin, but all sickness, all disease, all of these issues are due to the fact that we are sinners and sin has invaded our, our, uh, our cosmos. And now he's restored. Silver and gold I don't have. But such as I do have, I'm going to give you. Rise. Stand on your feet. And he stood up and his legs were strengthened. And he leaped and around and ran through the temple, jumping up and down, rejoicing, praising God. Because a microcosm of the restoration had occurred to him. And it drew a great crowd. Drew a great crowd. And they wondered with amazement, what is going on here? So Peter declared that he and John had really nothing personally to do with it. Not with this miracle. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob sent a servant Jesus to them whom they, his audience, had delivered and denied in the presence of Pilate. That's Acts chapter 3, verse 13. They, re they had rejected the Holy and Righteous One, choosing in His place a murderer. And in so doing, they killed, in Peter's language, the author of life. Hmm. But God raised him. And now Peter and John declare themselves to be witnesses of this Christ. So it was in his name, which means his authority and power, it was in his name that this healing was done. The author of life. One, and one of these days, this author of life is going to restore all his people. And we'll be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye. But then T Peter turned to the crowd and he addressed them in this issue to apply it to them. Brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance as did also your rulers. But what God foretold, now listen to this, what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ, his Messiah, should suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn back that your sins may be blotted out. Re repentance is a change of mind. It's a change of heart. It's a change of action. It's a change of understanding. It's, I, w I was going in this direction, now I'm turning around and I'm going in the right direction. I w I'm going the wrong direction, now I've got to get straightened out and go in the right direction. Repent that your sins may be blotted out. And then there is a purpose clause. That times of refreshing may come from the presence 
of the Lord. That's why we're here. We're here to see times of refreshing coming from the presence of the Lord. And what does that mean? I think that that means that in this in this era of gospel presentation, we will not see the full restoration, but we will see it in microcosm after microcosm after microcosm. Hearts changed, people saved and renewed, churches gathering, celebrating the Lord Jesus Christ in a miniature kingdom setting. And then notice what he says. And that he may send. I thought he had already sent him. That he may send the Christ appointed for you. In what way is he... I mean, wasn't he already sent? Didn't they reject him? Put him on the cross? What does he mean here? His second coming. That he may send. But I think more than that, I mean, I think it means that as these times of refreshing come, the Lord himself comes spiritually to renew people. To revive people, to restore people. It's what we have. That's what we're that's what we need to experience. It's what we have in the gospel age. And as we until, and then notice to receive until, so here's the here is the destination of it, the consummation, the time for restoring all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. That's what it's all about. Notice how Peter's understanding of everything has really changed. That's because the Holy Spirit of God leads us into all truth. But note again these words, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all things. This is the consummation. A time promised again and again in the prophets of old. In the above words, Peter laid out God's plan for this age. He sent Jesus to the covenant people as promised of old. They rejected him and insisted on his crucifixion according to the plan of God for that redemption and for the redemption of his people which they did not understand. But God raised him up from the dead and seated him at his own right hand. And thus, what then was accomplished in the healing of this lame man was a time of refreshing (laughs) coming from the presence of the Lord. These times in which the Spirit, through the witness of his people will call out a people for his name. And when this work is completed, the end or the consummation, the time for restoring all things will indeed come. And I say, well, what has this to do with our story today? Hang on. Hang on. In other words, the cross, though visual and necessary, was only a part of a greater scheme 
And we read that in Psalm 53, verse 6. Oh, that salvation for Israel. That's the restoration of the kingdom. Would come out of Zion. When God restores the fortunes of His people, that is, in righteousness and holiness. Let Jacob rejoice. Let Israel be glad. That's the people of God. God's people have always pled. And again, this is in Lamentations. Chapter 5, verses 20 to 22. Why do you forget us forever? Why do you forsake us for so many days? Have you ever prayed that way? When it seems like things just not going right? Things not going according to your plans or expectations? When you don't see the blessing of God like you would like to see it? And you cry out to God, Oh God, did you forget us? Have you forsaken us? Why has it been so long? Restore us to Yourself, O Lord, that we may be restored. We can't do it. it you, ha you have to do it. Restore us. That's re Restore the kingdom. Renew our days of old. Unless You have utterly rejected us, But here's the whole thing. This announcement of the angels was saying concerning that prayer, I haven't forsaken you. I haven't rejected you. In this message, I want you to note two things. First of all, the announcement of the angel with its implications, and then secondly, the angelic celebration of his incarnation and what that signified. First, so first of all, notice the announcement of the angel. I bring you good news. That's the Greek word euangelion, which is the word that we use to translate gospel. I bring you the gospel of great joy that will be for all the people for unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. That's 2 verses 10 and 11. What would be good news? Bringing great joy to the people. What Would it not be the restoration of the kingdom in righteousness and holiness to the people of God? To the people that to whom this angel came, these shepherds, part of the society and culture in which they lived, they were expecting this Davidic king to restore again Israel as the jewel of the nations. The Greek word, the term here is already presented here, used in, in, in uh, this means good news. This good news was used also by Gabriel to Zechariah in, uh, back in chapter 1, verse 19. When Gabriel said to the priest, I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news, this gospel. Well, immediately at first reading, 
the subject of that seems to appear to be the son long prayed for by Elizabeth and Zechariah. But on a deeper examination, it is the fact that this son was to be the forerunner of the Messiah, bringing in the restoration promised. And although at this time the verb does not have the sense of gospel that will be preached in the last days, it does declare that what was anticipated was now in progress. The object of the good news, Jesus Christ, was here. Five things, then, are to be noted in, in this announcement of the shepherd. The angel also gave them a sign that would, that, uh, would indicate that they had found the one whom they were going to seek. Now, the, now, notice these five things in the in the announcement. The first here is great joy. Great joy. Boy, great joy offsets the burdened cry. Have you forgotten us? Have you forsaken us all these days? Ah, I've got good news of great joy. That would counter then the great fear, the megaphobia that the shepherds experienced when the angel appeared to them. Can you imagine being out there as a shepherd on those days, at night after night, going through the same kind of routine, and then all of a sudden one night, wow! And I can I could understand that they would be terrified with a great terror, which which that means megaphobia. Their great joy then would was to replace that megaphobia, megakara. This great joy was designed for notice all the people, for all the people. That Greek word is Laos. The, there's a country named Laos, <laughs> and you know what that what it simply means translated people, people for all the people, and in that economy the term generally had reference to all Israel and this reference applied here because God was now fulfilling his promises he made to Abraham and to Israel back in chapter 1 verse 55 we read as he spoke to our fathers to Abraham and to his offspring forever so we read in Zechariah 9 9 rejoice greatly O daughter of Zion, shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation, deliverance. Although the promises were given to national Israel under the old covenant, the plan of God, however, in the new covenant era, would extend these promises to all the nations, all people through the seed of Abraham. Because Jesus is the Messiah. And so there in Galatians chapter 3, verse 16, the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring, referring to one, Paul says, and to your offspring who is Christ. So all who are in Christ are part of this promise. To all the people who are in the Lord Jesus Christ. The tense of the verb here is, is future 
and thus prophetic, indicating that the coming age of the proclamation of the good news of salvation would spread this great joy to all people, Jew and Gentile alike. Hallelujah. Secondly, the reason for this great joy was that unto you is, or literally has been, born this day a Savior. Unto you. Personal. And the Jewish day began at sunset. And thus this day, or today, refers to the very night Jesus was born. His birth had just occurred. Yet again, I think, a deeper read. This day may have a greater significance, the anticipation that a Savior or a Deliverer has come this day, this current age, makes possible than the age to come. Thirdly, the angel announced the birth of a Savior, a Savior. You say, wait a minute, He is the Savior. No, it says a Savior. So the, the absence here of the definite article, the, however, in no way suggests that Jesus was only one Savior among many other Saviors. In fact, the relative clause itself makes that impossible. The Savior is definite. There is but one Savior, Jesus, Christ Jesus the Lord. And this, too, must be understood in the Jewish context. The Jews were not looking for a personal Savior from sin, but a national deliverer from Gentile domination. So we read there in Psalm 79, 9 and 10, Help us, O God of our salvation, for the glory of your name. Deliver us from our enemies and our oppressors, and atone for our sins that brought them on it, that brought them as judgment on us, for your name's sake. Why should the nations say, where is their God? Note the plurality in this passage. The appeal for God to atone for sins is a reference to national rejection of God in favor of the Baals, which caused God to, in effect, desert them. And thus their Gentile captors asked, where is your God? And here is a plea for God to come and to deliver them and to make His name and glory again known. However, Luke also directs the reader to understand that this day, the gospel age, the focus would be upon individual salvation and deliverance from personal sin and judgment. Thus, he wrote of Mary, My spirit rejoices in God my Savior. 1 verse 47 and Zechariah announced that John's ministry would give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. Savior to save salvation each referred to the mighty act of rescue and restoration from a condition from a condition of sin and destruction to a condition of safety and security 
which would ultimately be fulfilled in the age to come at the consummation when Christ returns. Fourthly, the Savior announced here uh, is that the Savior announced here is identified as Christ the Lord. Now think about this. He's talking about a baby. That baby is declared to be Christ and Lord. Christos is the verbal form of the ceremonial creo, which means to anoint. Christos, translated the Hebrew Mashiach or Messiah, anointed one. Again, every Jew would immediately recognize the designation to refer to the great deliverer promised to to the oppressed nation of Israel. Sadly, the Jews' preconception with a national and physical deliverance caused them to reject Jesus as per the plan of God when he didn't live up to their expectations. And that was because Jesus revealed the spiritual and personal nature of his deliverance in establishing a new covenant as promised by by Jeremiah in chapter 31, verse 1. The term Lord, kurios, is used by Luke up until this verse to refer only to the Father, Yahweh. Now the angel tells the the shepherds that this babe is also to be regarded as Lord. The Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, Hebrew Old Testament, in Lamentations chapter 4 verse 20, that this is the only place in the Old Testament where this combination, Lord Christ, is found, and or Lord anointed Lord. Notice, the breath of our nostrils, the Lord's anointed, was captured in their pits, of whom we said, under his shadow we shall live among the nations. I don't want to explain that now, but, but that's where the, the reference. Kurios. Lord, uh, kurios, Lord, is not translated uh, Yahweh, does not translate that, but it translates Adon, which is, uh, in the sense, a divine Lord. He's a divine Lord. And notice in Psalm 110, verse 1, the Lord, Yahweh, said to my Lord, Adon, Sit at my right hand, that is the seat of authority, until I make your enemies your footstool. This reference to Jesus as Lord complements the prophecy of Micah 5 2. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are little, too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth to me one who is to be ruler in Israel. Jesus is to rule Israel and all the world to boot. Thus we read in Philippians 2, verses 9 through 11, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow and every tongue should confess uh, on on earth and under the earth, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess 
that Jesus Christ is Lord, Adon, to the glory of God the Father. And then fifthly and lastly here, the city of David. Uh, in the Greek text, it is at the end of the sentence, not in the middle of the sentence. The translators tra put it in the middle of the sentence for greater understanding, but in the Greek, uh, and there's a reason for it in the Greek, standing at the end of the sentence, and, and it get, lends it more significance as the shepherds heard it, and and the and he said in the in the the, the city of David, and that is, of uh, not the, the angel didn't say in Bethlehem. Notice he didn't say Bethlehem. He said in the city of David, and that had more significance for them than anything else. The king's name invoked all the messianic promises made to David, to David. So here's the covenant of David. We had the covenant made with uh, uh, Abraham. Now we have the covenant, uh, the covenant made with Moses. Now we have the covenant made with David. Jesus fulfills all of those covenants and brings them to their end. The Greek text places, as I said, the location at the end of the sentence, which gives it greater emphasis. Now, then... What about the uh, sign? And um, let me be very brief with that. The sign then informed the shepherds that there was uh, how they would identify the baby. The angel states in his instruction in, in such a way that it takes for granted that the shepherds will seek out the child and they will be successful in finding him. And when they do, this will be the sign for you. However, the feature in their discovering will no doubt shock them. How? It's the humble circumstances in which they will find him. This babe has just been announced to be the long-expected deliverer of Israel, the Lord Christ, who is to occupy the throne of David. One would expect such a person to be born in luxury, in wealth, in pomp, in a palace. But what do we find? The sign. They'll find him in a cattle shed wrapped in strips of cloth, rags, bedded in a feed trough. That defies imagination. But I think the sign also points to the fact that he is to be the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John one twenty nine. That brings us to the second thing, the, the glorious celebration to follow. After this announcement, the heavens unveiled a glorious choir. Don't you wish you could have heard it? I wish it had been recorded and we could log on to YouTube and listen to it. <laughs> Wouldn't that be something? But this angelic choir suddenly breaks forth in a glorious tune. Glory to God in the highest and on earth. 
peace, goodwill toward men. That's the King James rendering. Though here, I, 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 what there's an implied though here, and I, let me read it in that way: Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace. See, there's only two things. There's glory to God in the highest, and then there is on earth peace. And the and the cause of it is God's goodwill toward men. Through God's goodwill toward men. So two realms then are coming together to celebrate this momentous fulfillment. Bringing glory to God on His heavenly throne... The angelic chorus represented the unseen spiritual realm in the highest. Thus they sang glory to God in the highest. The shepherds, on the other hand, occupied the physical, tangible realm of earth. Thus the angels sang that in this realm, earth, the event would result in peace due to God's goodwill toward men. Zechariah spoke of the blessing of the peace of this of his prosperity in 179 when he said to guide our feet into the way of peace. When I was studying for this message, I was blown away at all the scripture references to the peace of God. I mean, I could, we could spend the rest of the morning just addressing those. Peace. And here's the definition. Peace is the condition in which God's wrath is turned away and His grace extended to repentant sinners so that they may live to please Him without fear and full of joy. Hmm. Let me repeat that. Peace is the condition in which God's wrath is turned away permanently and His grace extended to repentant sinners, enabling them to live in a way to please Him with joy and rejoicing. Without any fear of stumbling. This babe is sent to bring peace on earth. He's the Prince of Peace. Isaiah 9.6 The next verse in Isaiah declares how he is to be the Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace. There will be no end. No warfare. There won't be any warfare. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. I think the full realization, however, is only going to come in the consummation because we don't see that today. But we do see it in the hearts of believers. The ultimate fulfillment of this prophecy, as I said, will not be realized until the consummation. When all his enemies are put under his feet, so in 1 Corinthians 15, 24, then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to the Father, 
God the Father after destroying, after destroying every rule and authority and power. Don't like what you see on the world scene today? Just hang on. He's doing that work right now. <laughs> He's destroying it. He's destroying every rule and authority and power. And this means, then, uh, the means here of this end is declared in, in uh, uh, Colossians chapter 1, verses 19 to 20. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things. See? Whether on earth or in heaven, the two realms, making peace by the blood of his cross. The work of Christ is to establish the new covenant, which is a covenant of peace, according to Ezekiel 34, verse 25. Peace is made first with God, Romans 5, 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Isaiah 53 declares, He, God, suffering servant, was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities, and upon him the chastisement of our uh, his, uh, the chastisement that brought us peace. Verse number five. Believers maintain this peace by walking in a way that pleases God. So we we were exhorted there in Hebrews chapter twelve, verse fourteen. Strive for peace with everyone. And for holiness, without which no one will see the Lord. Romans eight six. Set your mind on the spirit. Uh, set your mind on. Set to set your mind on the spirit is life, and peace. Isaiah thirty two verses seventeen and eighteen to. And the effect of righteousness will be peace. And the result of righteousness, quietness and trust forever. My people will, divide, will abide in a peaceful habitation, in secure dwellings, in quiet resting places. Hmm. Isn't that nice? Psalm 85 verse 10. Steadfast love and faithfulness meet. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. Psalm 119, 165. Great peace have they who love your law, and nothing can make them stumble. Isaiah 26, verse 3. You keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on you. Because he trusts in you. Ah. So because of Christ's work, reconciling God and man, God promises in Isaiah 54 verse 10, For the mountains may depart and the hills may be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you, and my covenant of peace shall not be removed. Amen. And Nahum 1.15, Thus all his people must proclaim the good news. For behold upon the mountains the feet of him who brings good news 
who publishes peace. Let me just conclude here. Thus we have glory in the heavenly realm, peace in the earthly realm, but what about this matter of God's goodwill toward men? There are some old manuscripts that, are, that reflect the Latin Vulgate that have God's peace granted to men of goodwill. To men of goodwill. This is based on the false view that men by nature are thought to fall into two classes. One, those of goodwill who seek God. And two, those of ill will who are evil and reject God. But the problem here is that the scripture places all men into one class. No one is good except God. God alone. That's Luke eighteen nineteen. The ESV renders the text among those with whom he is pleased. And we say, yeah, well, that's true. God is pleased with some because of he saved them. Others follow the similar read. Here's the problem in the reading, that reading is it's self contradictory. Men in whom God is well pleased have no need for peace since they already have it or they wouldn't be men of goodwill. If they don't have it, they're not, they don't please God. No, that's not, that's not it either. The, the Greek here is a little confusing. So the King James, I believe, has, has it right. Good will toward men. Good will is never a reference to a moral quality. It is always used in Scripture to refer to good pleasure. The good pleasure of God. Jesus rejoiced in Matthew 11 that God hid th these things, that is spiritual truths from the wise and understanding. Rather, He chose to reveal them to little children for as Jesus said, such was your gracious will or good pleasure. Same word. The same word. Indeed, it is the good pleasure of God to grant the peace of reconciliation through repentance and faith to a great host of mankind, assuring them of His continuing favor. Thus, Isaiah 54.10, For the mountains may be depart and the hills may be removed but my steadfast love shall not depart from you and my covenant of peace shall not be removed no God's good pleasure it's because of God's good pleasure that we're here this morning it's his good pleasure toward us through Jesus Christ that we have been born from above it's God's good pleasure toward us that we have the peace of God that passes all understanding. That's His gracious will. So God doesn't, doesn't promise peace to men of good will. Neither is He promising... Well, He does promise more peace to those with whom he is well pleased. 
But that's not really what the verse says. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the opportunity to consider these truths this morning. Lord, the, the, the declaration of the angel and the, and the rejoicing that took place afterwards, oh, that's what we want to do all the time. We want to hear the proclamation of the good news of peace, Lord, with you and peace with one another in this earthly realm as we wait for the day when that will be the standard. There will be no more war, no more conflict, no more rebellion against God, no more persecution of believers. Peace on earth because of the goodwill of God. Oh, what a glorious truth that our God has, in spite of our sin, chosen to love us and to restore us to Himself as His children. And I pray that that may be the reality of everyone who's listening to this message this morning. And Lord, grant us the mercy and grace to be the ones on the mountains preaching whose beautiful feet are proclaiming that message as our feet are shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. And we'll praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.